This is the Future Focus Terminal Podcast, where we talk about challenges operators face and how experts combine human ingenuity, experience, and innovative tech and deliver unprecedented solutions that lead the way. Welcome back to the Future Focus Terminal Podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Fairchild. Today, we're going to talk about one question and one question only. What should we expect for 2024? And joining me today, I have three esteemed guests that are going to help me unpack that question. I have Sam Kay, Chief Economist, Gene Soroka, Executive Director of the Port of Los Angeles, the busiest container port in North America, and DeAndre Larry, Head of Intermodal for Uber Freight. Welcome, gentlemen, and thanks for joining me. All right, I'm going to go ahead and let you guys introduce yourselves to the audience and our listeners. So, Sam, do you want to kick us off? Yes, uh, I am uh, an economic consultant at SAK Economics LLC in South Lake, Texas. Thank you, Sam. And some people don't know this about Gene, but when I uh, changed over from being a tax attorney to get into the supply chain space, APL um, and Gene Sirocco are my first customer. So they taught me everything I know about Intermodal. So thank you, Gene. You want to introduce yourself? Oh, you've had plenty of runway, Shauna, but thanks for having me on today. I'm Gene Soroka, the Executive Director at the Port of Los Angeles. I've been here at the port now for about 10 years, and prior to that, I was with APL and APL Logistics for about 26 years, including 11 in Asia and the Middle East. So great to be with you today. Thanks so much, Gene. DeAndre? Good morning. Great to be here, and thanks for having me, Shauna. DeAndre Larry, I lead Intermodal at Uber Freight. I'm a recovering railroader. I've been a railroad intermodalist for the majority of my career the last couple of decades, most recently at Norfolk Southern leading the international automotive business segments. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. All right. So before we jump into 2024, let's not get ahead of ourselves. We should probably talk about 2023 and how it's going to close out. Sam, I'm going to go ahead and start with you again. So how, how accurate have predictions been about 2023? And if they haven't been accurate, you know, why has the outlook been uncertain? So I'm kind of leading the witness here. Okay, let, let, let me start off with how we're closing out uh, uh, 2023. And I will say that for a motor freight, it is uh, closing out with a bang, actually. Uh, I'm happy to say that uh, the intermodal originations, they seem to still be peaking. And uh, with 48, uh, the railroads are originated 278,000 loads, which is, which is the best they've done all year. And it looks like, uh, uh, it, uh, it, looks like it, could, it could still peak some more, but uh, I'm watching that carefully. And... Uh, in a typical year, we will peak at week 38, 39. This is week 48, and uh, and the freight is still peaking. Now, when you look at it, put it in context uh, regarding uh, year-on-year growth rates, November looks like it's coming in about 4.8%. Now, this compares to uh, second quarter, for example, where in a motor was down 11%. So it looks strong. And, and, and the other thing that, Correlates with this uh, motor performance is also uh, what the what we saw with the retailers as far as uh, Thanksgiving and uh, Black Friday, the five day period where they reported something close to seven point eight percent retail sales. So 
that that is 2023 as is how is closing out how how was it being predicted a year ago from now the street wall street was uh uh predicting recession and uh the bank of uh, america and other banks they were all thinking recession and the vendor that I use, which is S&P Global, they change uh, to predict a recession uh, with three quarters of recession. Well, uh, here we are today, and I'm anticipating that we are going to see uh, about 2.4% GDP growth this year. Uh, next year, it could slow a little bit, but it's still not a recession. I don't see a recession. Uh, in the cards. Now, why why were they predicting a recession? And uh, for this, I am uh, yeah, my, my reason is this that this, if you want a one word answer, the one word answer is pandemic. Let me explain. This business cycle is different from any business cycle we've seen in our lifetimes. The previous business cycle, the business cycle will start with a recession. Uh, the, uh, there will be some pump priming from fiscal uh, policy in terms of stimulus and also uh, monetary policy all to bring the economy back from when, when, when the recession starts. And then typically the recession would involve excess capacity. Usually when this stimulus goes in, the excess capacity picks up. And the economy expansion starts and the economy. I've seen three recessions in my 30-year railroad career, and they all acted the same way. This time around, the pump priming happened, the stimulus happened, but because of fear of the pandemic, there were huge labor shortages. People stayed the fight or flight uh, response that all mamas have, people stayed home and they weren't willing to work. Today, what we are seeing is they are coming back into the labor force. The, when the pandemic happened, 22 million people uh, were laid off. Eight million of those went straight out of the labor force. Today, businesses are rebuilding capacity. And so they're coming out of the labor force. So that whole mechanism is hard to forecast. And I think a lot of these banks, they use Phillips curve type models, meaning when unemployment is, is high, then inflation goes the other way. In other words, they predict, uh, they predict uh, an inverse relationship between inflation and unemployment. Well, we've had is going the Phyllis cap has completely been broken down. So this is this time is different and it's hard to predict. Jane, I'd love to get your perspective as well. Um, obviously, in 2020 through most of 2022, you know, international volumes, you know, imports coming in, and even international intermodal volumes were high. Then, as we got into 2023, we saw much of a different story. Um, you know, what's your perspective on how we finish out the rest of 2023 and what we should, you know, I guess expect for the rest of the year here, which isn't uh, too much longer. And wh- what's I, your perspective even on how, uh, you know, the peak has gone, so to speak. 
I, I think that we, we finished the year strong and, and similar to Sam's take on intermodal, we had a really rough first quarter. We were down here at the Port of Los Angeles just to use it as a barometer of the nation's economy in the supply chain, 32% year over year. That was our comp. But Q2 through the end of the year, we really picked up the pace. And we'll probably wind up the end of the year down about 12% compared to 2022, and maybe 10% compared to that five-year average, which I think is a little more important from an evaluation standpoint. Of course, during the pandemic, we saw folks buying just in case, no longer just in time. Ports were used as warehouses. And everything that went through that surge with the American consumer buying so much product. But this year we saw inventories remain elevated, both for retail products as well as manufacturing. Mostly those levels have come down appreciably to the point where in 24, I see us on a more normal shipping calendar. Lunar New Year will be February 10th to start the holiday in Asia. So we'll see those landings after a surge by the end of February with a soft March. Then we'll get into that cadence of seasonal products coming in, uh, spring fashion, patio furniture, lawn chairs, e-fans, all the things that we're normally used to seeing. And then we'll see those summer fashion back to school and a traditional peak season next year. This peak season, relatively muted. But overall, when the November numbers come out, which should signify the end of that last minute international rush, you'll see a pretty good pop here at the Port of Los Angeles on the upside. Uh, I also like what Sam said about the economy in general. We still have about 8.7 million jobs open. Just today, the 199,000 jobs number was a little bit higher than some experts expected. And unemployment dipped now to 3.7% once again, which has been a low water mark in recent memory. What that signifies also is that even with higher interest rates, even with inflation still being a little bit stubborn, the American consumer generating 70% of our GDP maintains a really good pace that some did not think would last this long. So we carry over into 2024, probably a little more moderation across the board on everything, allowing us, I think, in the logistics realm to make sure that we continue to focus on efficiencies and operating better every day. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you, Gene. All right, DeAndre, your turn. So, you know, we've talked obviously about macroeconomy debate. We've talked about international. And a lot of times, as you know, we all know in the industry, the international converts over into domestic. And so there's a lot of relationship there. So give me your perspective on what happens for the rest of the year in domestic and specifically, you know, if the year's strong for the international in terms of the rest of the year, is that true for domestic? And then how are you feeling about, you know, going into 2024? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with uh, sort of celebrating what Gene said, because we root for Gene to be busy because from an intermodal standpoint, that tends to end up being more intermodal freight, both domestic and international, than if some of those loads were to land in other ports in North America. So that's a good thing. I think that's driving part of the intermodal story. You know, I think a large part of the intermodal story is international is up. And domestic is seeing some buoyancy across, you know, sporadically across markets, but kind of coming off really low lows. So our volume, we expect to sort of be flattish with the intermodal market for the remainder of the year. And then looking through the end of the year at supply and demand, you know, it's kind of a mixed bag. You know, supply, if you think of, if I think about it from a truck perspective, first tender acceptance 
uh, that we're seeing out in the marketplace is slightly up, but it's it's kind of bouncing along, um, flattening out. If I think about drive-in rates, they're up slightly, but fuel's down. So there's some transfer of pricing from fuel uh, being high to going into the driver's park pocket, and that's a good thing. And then the load to truck ratio is seasonally up like it should be. Uh, it's behaving as you would expect. That's a good thing because it hasn't always behaved that way in the last two years, but um, it's, it's, it's up and that's good. So from a demand perspective, we see that the consumers in a, um, a decent spot, they're transferring a little bit from discretionary spending on services and experiences back to um, things that drive intermodal growth and drive over the road freight. But even that demand is flattish. Uh, so we're seeing that not pick up the way you'd want it to see. Capital good orders are down slightly in the most recent reports. And then we've seen a softening of the ISM data that says we're below 50, which isn't in expansion territory. But uh, there are signs that it's got opportunity to get a little stronger. Looking at a 2024, you know, I, I'm probably a bad predictor of this because if you talked to me this time last year, I'd say you see freight rates and freight demand starting to strengthen in the second half of the year. You'd see, um, you know, trucker supply and things like that all move in favor of higher truck prices. And that didn't occur for all the reasons that Gene and Sam uh, highlighted. But I think going into 2024, there's some optimism that in the back half of the year, there is opportunity. But I think the, the shipping public has sort of a great situation. You know, those boxes that are coming in for Gene, that's also boxes that are looking for loads to come back out for Gene. And so shippers have optionality. Right now, shippers have an opportunity to do things that we think, um, you know, benefit intermodal and Uber Freight's great at, and that's uh, take care of carbon. You can reset your carbon footprint with more intermodal and things like that right now. So shippers are thinking about some of those things that going into the next year. I think that'll help drive some of the intermodal story. I also think that there's an opportunity for us to have a stronger economy going into uh, next year, depending on how soft this soft landing is and how we revert after that. Okay, so we've talked about 2024 a little already, but I just wanted to give you all an opportunity to address whether there are other risks or opportunities for 2024 that you didn't get to hit on already. So Sam, let's go ahead and start with you. Any other risks or opportunities for 2024 that our listeners should be aware of? Okay, the biggest risk to me is uh, is still the Federal Reserve tightening cycle. Um, and, and it's gonna be tricky because inflation is coming down and as inflation comes down, I expect inflation uh, to get closer uh, to the first uh, 2% target uh, by 2025, if not earlier. And as inflation slowly uh, uh, gets closer to target, what that means if the Fed doesn't adjust rates is that in real terms, the Fed funds rate is too restricted. And so at some point, the Fed has to, going, going up, raising rates was hard enough, but bringing it down is also going to be tricky because they have to make sure that their real Fed funds rate is not too restrictive to tighten up the economy too much. So... I'm anticipating right now the street is anticipating 
five uh, cuts of interest rates uh, next year. I think that's a bit much, but I'm anticipating that the Fed is going to have to lower rates into 2024 to just to make sure that the economy is not overly restrictive and trip us into a recession. In other words, the road through soft landing is tricky and, and the Fed is actually in the driver's seat and they have to do a good job to, uh, to get us there. So that is still my number one um, risk. Uh, and, and my number one opportunity is what I talked about earlier. And, and Gene mentioned that as well. If you look at today, we saw about 199,000 jobs, okay, in the job report that was released today. What that means is that people are getting jobs and getting income. And that helps the consumer. A lot of people focus too much on the savings rate going down. But the biggest bank for the consumer is a consumer who is who has a job and can spend. So that is the biggest opportunity. What what you when you ask me about why I think the the, the whole street and and a lot of bank economists missed the forecast was that there was a resilient uh, consumer who was getting jobs and getting hired. And so I think there is still room for people to come out of the labor force today, there were half a million people came out of the labor force in this job report looking for jobs. So they are still out there and the labor force participation rate has to get, it's not even yet close to where we left off pre-pandemic. It has to go up and get to that point. So I think the job market still have room to give in terms of people getting more jobs and then uh, uh, getting the uh, consumer still being resilient. So that's, again, my number one opportunity. Okay, thank you, Sam. How about you, Jean? What do you think the top risks and opportunities are for 2024? Yeah, I think, Shauna, three things to watch for. One is the supply demand or the vessel capacity in our international trade. New build vessels coming in. It's a buyer's market again in 2024 as we head to traditional contracting season in the spring. So those freight prices will be pretty good looking to those who import and export and liner vessel operators have to fill those ships and the slots. The second thing is that we'll be watching very closely the East Coast dock worker negotiation. See how that covers the east and Gulf Coast of the United States. The International Longshore Association has not gone on a strike since the early 1970s. I don't expect any huge upheaval, but it's going to be interesting to watch because much like consumer sentiment, we do have container sentiment and cargo tends to flow into areas where you have some level of certainty that that flow is going to take place day in and day out. And then lastly, it's an election year. And that may preoccupy some. It'll drive the thought process of others, including investment, both domestic and foreign. We'll see how this plays out as we head into November in the general election. Yep, absolutely. I agree with all of those. Actually, we're going to deep dive into those a little bit um, in a second. So you've anticipated some of mine, Gene. All right, DeAndre, I'm going to give you a turn before we uh, ask some questions around some of those. 
I, I the only thing I'd add, I think Gene and Sam covered all of the big ones we we're thinking about as well. I think the two things: one, uh, drive and spot rates. You know that drives uh, intermodal conversion. Just we're watching that keenly to see what it does. I think that's an opportunity. I think to that end, I think the supply chain buyer really has an opportunity to do some structurally uh, impactful things to their supply chains to future-proof them, both from a carbon perspective right now and how they buy and how they structurally manage inflation uh, by sort of looking at for the most um, optionality in their supply chain. So I'm hearing and seeing a lot of supply chain uh Chief supply chain officers and others really have that focus in their supply chain today. The second thing we haven't touched on is is nearshoring. I think that uh, even a small ripple will have an impact on the North American supply chain. Look at the automotive supply chain over the last couple of years. That you know, small moves in production at different points in the country really impacted the ability to get goods moved around. And so we've got several things that are out there that point to nearshoring um, having some momentum. And what that does to the ability to get trucks in the U.S. is going to be something we all need to watch. I think it could be an opportunity uh, for some freight flows to uh, get, get changed and benefit from it. But I also think it could be a risk because right now, you know, the same shortages that we had in the U.S. for drivers in Mexico, they're seeing some of those shortages as well. So. As that comes to fruition, uh, you know, what's going to be the backstop and how do they build future proof supply chains into and out of these new markets that are um, going to benefit from new capacity for nearshoring? So we're going to stay on nearshoring because this was one of the questions I have. So, I mean, I'll tell you, ever since I've been in this industry, the topic of nearshoring has come up, it's gone away, it's going to come up again. Let's start with Eugene. What do you think is is nearshoring going to happen? How big will it get? Is Mexico going to become a, a superpower? Oh, it's it's real, Shauna. And as we learned through the uh, the crunch of COVID nineteen and all the supply chain disruptions, leaders and day to day folks that we work with all talk about this on a regular basis. Whether it's a China plus one strategy on the international side, nearshoring, reshoring, or even friendshoring as mm -hmm. Treasury Secretary Yellen has termed it, are all in the line of sight of companies who are on the global supply chain playing field. What we did see in 2022 is that year over year growth from Mexico to the United States on the import side of the ledger grew by 28%. It is real. Automotive electronics companies and their tiered suppliers have been ingrained in the Mexican supply chain for decades now. We'll also start to see real benefits from the USMCA, the US-Mexico uh, trade agreement with Canada, and the ability that an automotive product now crosses the border about seven times on average before the finished vehicle is complete and out to the dealership. So there's a tremendous amount of leverage with our two largest trading partners, Canada and Mexico, with the United States to continue bolster supply chains, get closer to original equipment manufacturers, producers, and ultimately, their end customers. So we'll continue to see this also in the traditional international space. Most of the international and domestic containers are manufactured in China by three companies. Chassis also manufactured where in China where we saw crunches on those asset availabilities during our most difficult times. 
So the ability for companies to invest and then carry over into making sure supply has some streamlined effect is going to be key. And then lastly, with the CHIPS Act under the administration and the work that's being done to reinvest in chips manufacturing, silicon-based and intelligence-based here in the United States can also drive a lot of the products that we ship and that we observe shipping. Chips are in everything today from cars to refrigerators to what we know as cell phones and other electronics equipment. Huge, huge investment is taking place, which will drive the business that we're talking about here today. All right, DeAndre or Sam, do you want to weigh in? Well, the only thing I'll add is just those those uh, microeconomics, micro supply markets of truckers that, you know, even with the CHIPS Act that that uh, Gene just mentioned, you know, the new production for auto that'll come, it'll create these baskets where, you know, will truckers say they want to go long haul and be truckers and take loads from, say, the southeast to the southeast or the, the southwest of the U.S., or will they want to, you know, benefit from the new production that's coming online there? Those truckers that are displaced in places like the Midwest, what will they go do? Will they remain in local markets? Will they, you know, how will that change? And then I think fundamentally we move more trucks into the U.S. from Mexico than we do down to Mexico. And so I, I rewind to a time that we probably all remember when it was starting, when, you know, steamship boxes used to flow into the inland of the U.S., and over time, the market, the free hand of the market figured out how to get reloads to those boxes to go back to help those economics. And I think we're going to see a market evolve over time that will help sort of even out that flow of what goes down into Mexico versus what comes out. And so I, I'm curious about the microeconomics and how they evolve. And I think the companies that can get out in front of that will benefit. You've seen it in some of the electronics companies' earnings where they've talked about the inability or the challenges getting boxes and getting freight into and out of Mexico and how it was a drag on their earnings. The market will solve these things over time. And I think it, back to chief supply chain officers and others, the folks that are future proofing their supply chain and uh, gaining the optionality with folks that, that have the ability to do that are the ones that I think will win fastest. And, and I'll just add, you had uh, in your question is, uh, is nearshoring uh, merely a headline buzz. A and my answer is absolutely not. It, it, is, it is real. But I want to put it in context. If you were to ask the question, uh, is, is nearshoring and Mexico going to replace the eastbound freight uh, that comes into the port of Los Angeles completely? I would say absolutely not. Okay, um, the I did some analysis uh, a while back during the 2020 uh, uh, pandemic uh, when it was the, the heat of it, and at that time China's uh, imports had goose imports had dropped by about 52 billion, and I look into where all that 52 billion came went you know, dropping out from China and where it went. And what I found was that Vietnam got about about 14 billion of that. And next, Mexico got 11 billion of that. And as I looked into it more, some of these Vietnam, Vietnam uh, um, uh, supply chains were actually transplants from China because China had, uh, uh, had these severe lockdowns. 
so what what you what you're seeing is optionality coming into the supply chains for shippers, and that's a good thing. Um, today, if you look at this year today, which Gene uh, uh, mentioned uh, mentioned earlier, Mexico actually now has fifteen uh, percent of the goods imports, which is bigger than China's. China, I think, today year to date is about 14%. But but if you put it in context historically, what you're going to find is 2020 when I did my study, uh, China was about uh, 19%. So they've dropped to 14, but there are issues there in terms of COVID and all these other, other uh, issues with the economy right now. And Mexico has gone from 14 to 15. So yes, the optionality is allowing nearshoring to be big and it will get bigger over time as uh, because these supply chain uh, uh, adjustments take time. You don't, you don't put a plant in China and abandon it just overnight to move it to Mexico. So there'll be uh, some time factor involved, but no doubt about it. Uh, as, as you heard from uh, your two guests, uh, I'm also big on nearshoring and looking at it more. Okay, um, so we talked a little bit about freight will often go where there is certainty. I think you mentioned that, Gene, and we've talked a little bit about nearshoring and how that even impacts some of the trade patterns. Um, so how about what's going on with the pa Panama Canal? So I think there's some uncertainty about and even some delays um, and so, Gene, I'm just interested in your perspective on whether or not you think volumes will shift back to the West Coast, given some of the uncertainty with what's happening in the Panama Canal and some of the delays. Yes, yeah, Sean, it's another it's another pinch point for the supply chain and and some concern for many. A lot of investment went there, as you well know, over the last 15 years to help open up that third lock and bring larger vessels more economically through the canal and give importers and exporters in North America choice. Uh, what we're hearing directly from from both sides of the ledger is that, yeah, some cargo is being booked onto vessels coming here to L.A. and to West Coast ports in general. But what we're not seeing are cancellations of services and the shift of those vessel assets here to the West Coast and Southern California specifically. So very much akin to the airline business. You're traveling for the holidays. There's snow and you got to get on another flight and find your way closer to grandma and grandpa when you're going there for for the uh, vacation, but not seeing a lot of shift of the assets. Uh, we're seeing a little bit of traffic pick up in the Suez Canal. And again, with some of the thoughts around migration of sourcing, as we talk about China plus one strategies, that line of demarcation has traditionally been Hong Kong. If, if you're buying products south of Hong Kong, you got a chance to bring that cargo through the Suez or through the Panama Canals as a pathway to the United States. Cargo originating north traditionally went to the West Coast and primarily to Southern California. Now, as we're seeing South Asia build up just a little bit more and some folks talking about diversifying into India, that's a pure Suez Canal play 
from a proximity standpoint on the geography, meaning the benefactors will be east and Gulf Coast ports. But watching closely, and unfortunately, we're coming into the uh, the dry season now for Panama from December through about March or April. So the situation there will get a little bit tighter, the queues somewhat longer. And there have been some reports in the media that folks are paying extra money to jump ahead in the queue. And that's a difficult proposition because it, again, means there are one-off changes to the supply chain that many of us simply cannot predict. So we'll keep a close eye on it. But given the volume of world trade on the containerized side of the business, and specifically that coming to and from U.S., American importers and exporters have choice on gateways and transit paths. So I don't think it'll be debilitating to the supply chain in the U.S. All right. So we're going to get to the presidential question now. Sam, I'm going to let you go first. So with the 2024 being an election year, how do you anticipate that the election will impact the economy, the freight market, and consumers? Generally, it, it, as Gene mentioned, uh, election years uh, tend to be associated with, um, with uh, or correlated with, with more growth. And it's borne out by the facts. If you look at, say, 19, all the way from 1960 to Today, the election year growth rates for just the election years is about three and a half percent, which is which is significant. Uh, but you, we need to we need to inject the fact that since uh, two thousand, two of the four or five uh, election years have had recessions. So it is possible to see a downturn in a, in, a, in a recession year. We saw the GFC, General Financial Crisis, in, in 2008. And then uh, in, uh, we saw the pandemic recession in 2020. Uh, if you look at the average growth rate from 2004 uh, election year all the way to now, it's about 1.5%. I anticipate that next year will be uh, ab about as much, you know, a little less than 2% uh, softening from the 2% we've seen this year to about a, a percent and a half. Having said that, okay, this forecast that I'm giving you is more contingent on economic fundamentals than just the election. Um, there is so much going on in the economy relating to bringing inflation down, which is a tricky uh, process for the Fed anyway, that you can take a recession off completely. And I, I think there's, there's still a 30% chance that we could, we could uh, uh, get, get a recession in 2024. Uh, it's not my base case at all. Okay, because as I've told you, the the strength of the consumer that is coming from a, a hundred year business cycle where supply rebalancing is actually what is driving this economy. People are coming in for jobs because the restaurants that couldn't hire, they couldn't find people. But now with COVID in the rearview mirror, people are coming out of the woodwork 
for jobs and they can hire them now. So what that is doing is it's offsetting the first demand destruction through interest rates. And that's a good thing for the economy. In other words, the Fed is actually, the, the, what is happening in, in uh, bringing inflation down is, is not just the interest rates. It's also the rebalancing the businesses across, and it's not just in U.S. Across the globe, businesses are rebalancing capacity that they couldn't have when everything was uh, was in turmoil. So, uh, yes, a recession, uh, an election year uh, is 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 could be a tailwind, but at this point, I'm looking at more of the fundamentals driving the growth rather than just the the fiscal policy from elections. Okay. DeAndre, Gene, would you like to weigh in at all? Well, I'll go first. I think the, uh, what was it? The great Yogi Berra said, you know, predictions are hard to make, especially about the future. I, uh, I, I'll fall into that, but I'll say this. I think the, um, you know, when I put my hat on of a, a consumer goods company CEO or a chief supply chain officer, the things I'd be thinking about going into next year with all the uncertainty we've seen over the last 10 years, last 15 years, really, um, is optionality. And I think that, you know, I think 2000 taught, 2020 taught us the fact that, you know, the things that we thought going into the election, uh, no one was talking about COVID. No one was talking about the world nearly shutting down. So I think leaders have to build their supply chains for optionality so that you've got diversification and not just suppliers, not just uh, modes, not just carriers, not just production points, but sort of all of the above, because you just don't know what's going to happen. And I think I've seen a lot of, from this perspective, a lot of supply chain organizations be able to do that over the last few years. So I'm not quite sure, as I said, predictions are hard to make, but I think that um, the winners, the people that will succeed fastest are the ones that have created that optionality, have discovered in their supply chains where the weak points are and tried to build a plan beyond those. And then you've got the backdrop of you know carbon reduction. You've got the backdrop of labor challenges that we've seen that people have also tried to solve around. So um, that's how we're marching forward. We're looking at that to say, let's, let's make sure that we're partnering with folks that are doing that because those will be the people that succeed the fastest and the longest and whatever comes to us next year. Gene, anything else you want to add? Yeah, totally agree with DeAndre. Some folks will be preoccupied. Other, others will be jockeying for position for what they see to portend out of elections and fiscal policy, legislative policy, et cetera. The continuity here could be important to those of us in the supply chain as well. Uh, with generational investment coming out of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, and some of the state-driven budgetary refinements have been a watershed of investment across our supply chain, whether it be ports and airports, roads, railways, and bridges. That's real money. And in our case, that has accelerated investment in some of the areas of weakness we witnessed during the COVID-induced uh, surge of cargo volume. So it'll be quite interesting. And you know, when Yogi said, you come to the fork in the road, you take it, that's probably where some will see, but stick into the basics, as was mentioned by both gentlemen, whether it's your look at the economy, of which I would argue from a pure textbook standpoint, we had our recession in 2022, Q1 and two 
by definition, showed uh, GDP declines two consecutive quarters in a row. So let's move past that, gain the momentum necessary to keep driving economic growth, jobs creation, and trying to settle through those two big statistics that many of the households talk about at the kitchen table every day. How much things cost at the store and how much it's going to cost me to pay for my mortgage or my car note. If those two things keep coming down and we in the supply chain business cycle that cargo to make sure that we've got the product on the shelves or online when the American consumer needs it. I think we see a pretty good looking economic uh, 2024. I love it. So on that positive note, I think we'll uh, end our you know, basic line of questioning today. But I do have one question that I have to ask everybody at the end of my podcast. And so that question is, Essentially, what does future-focused terminal mean to you? So I'm going to start. Probably, DeAndre, I didn't uh, let you go first a lot of times, so I'm going to have you go first. What does future-focused terminal mean to you? I think it starts with, you know, partnering with like-minded entities that have a similar view of what the future could look like with you. So it's it's technology. It's capacity, it's those things, but it's also having people that see a general direction of the future that's similar to what you see. And that I believe are things like optionality that I believe there will be a time where I think you'll see more autonomous and more electric vehicles across our supply chain. It'll be the norm. I truly believe that. Um, so I think the terminals of the future will not just have automation and things like that, but it'll have the ability to um, supply for that. And so if I'm thinking about the terminals of the future, you know, and the partners that I'd want to be with that are looking at that, what are their thoughts on that? And if that's not on their registry, they're probably not the conversations or the people that I want to have the conversations with. So I think it's really having that alignment around what you value in the future that you're trying to solve for. And then the other things will sort of sort themselves out. But it will be uh, close as close to carbon free as it can be. It will be as efficient as it can be. It will be, you know, advertising and implementing and, and every day using the technology that's on the forefront. And whoever's doing that, again, will win the fastest and win the most. Uh, I, I switched the question around a little bit because I, I've watched the railroads. And as an economist, um, I tend to think that we are in a cyclical business and that we really should pay attention to what what the economy is giving us and using the optionality and the and the and the thoughts that you heard from DeAndre to be able to serve it. And so I tend to look at uh, what are the key drivers that tell me that we are playing that function uh, in the role of, of a real system that is serving the economy and is uh, 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 attuned to the volumes that are coming in. Absolutely. All right, Gene, why don't you finish us up? What does Future Focus Terminal mean to you? Yeah, Shauna, you and I have shared these ideals for a long time. I think, one, it's still a relationship-based business in this day and age, whether it's Con Global or your work with the UP in the past. And second, realizing that whatever node we may be in in this supply chain, and specifically with terminals, we're a system of systems. 
and we're not just siloed in our approach and what we're doing to, to work off of what the two gentlemen just said as well. It's the ability to reach our tentacles out to those other partners that we have interdependencies with and have co-benefits to gain when we're working together so closely. The digitalization of information, the protection of that data, the investment in infrastructure, public-private partnerships, and this migration to a zero emission or zero carbon future that we all share in the supply chain. That's my look, and I think with the four of us, we have those ideas right in front of us that can help continue to drive forward with making our services that we provide to the mutual customer better every day. Well, thank you gentlemen for joining me today. This was a wonderful discussion. I know everybody's gonna find it highly informative. And to our listeners, um, until next time, I hope you will subscribe to our podcast and take care.